Hello, welcome beautiful people to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. This week, we will be talking about impeachment and all that that entails. And I'm speaking today with Representatives Martin Lalonde and Representative Mike McCarthy, who are the chair and vice chair, respectively, for the special, I've got all my little note cards, hold on, the House Special Committee on Impeachment Inquiry. (laughs) Quickly, before we dive into the conversation, I just want to let everyone know that regular contributor Emily Kornheiser can't be with us today, so hopefully we will hold down the fort well without her. So, I would like to start just very, very quickly, Martin and Mike. Thank you for being here. We're talking about impeachment today because of two folks up in elected officials up in Franklin County. You may have heard, but for the sake of listeners, there's Franklin County State's Attorney, John Lavoie, who resigned last month from the position, but also Franklin County Sheriff John Grismore. Both of them have questionable behavior that have been has been investigated and has risen to the level of we want to remove these folks from office and so it has spurred an impeachment process for both of these gentlemen and before we get into like the nitty-gritty of why I just want to turn it over to Martin and Mike and talk about impeachment in general in Vermont because it's not something we have done often I think the last time the legislature dealt with it was in 1976. Before that, there was a number of impeachment processes back in the 1700s, but it really kind of sounded like they were getting their act together (laughs) more than anything else. So Martin or Mike, um, what do listeners need to understand right now? Yeah, I think uh, uh, I'll get started here. Uh, <laughs> Save me from myself. So, I was going starting to well, go in circles. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much, Olga, for having both of us and bringing a little bit of a spotlight on the work that we're doing on the special committee. But to back up, I think I can start telling the, a little bit of the story of how we, we got formed and why the special committee exists. So I represent uh, the majority of the city of St. Albans as my mm-hmm. district. So we're right in the middle of Franklin County. And th- these two cases that our special committee is has been looking at, one we we just uh, closed with the resignation of state's attorney, John LaVoy, that came out of a request from the Department of State's attorneys and sheriffs. There had been complaints last year that led to an investigation that the, the department, so this is the state department that doesn't, the administration of all the 14 uh, state's attorneys, they looked into some of these complaints from staff and people in the office. They hired an outside investigator, Paul Frank and Collins, uh, those attorneys did interviews and looked in. And so, and they, you know, found that there were some pretty serious allegations of, uh, you know, inappropriate, unprofessional, discriminatory comments. and. We uh, added that as one of the cases that we were going to look at. And over the course of last legislative session, my committee, so I chair the House Government Operations and Military Affairs Committee and our Senate counterparts in uh, in GovOps, uh, Senator Ruth Hardy's committee, 
looked at uh, issues related to the office of sheriff. So both sheriff and state's attorney are elected county positions. They're defined in the Vermont state constitution. They're very independent. There isn't really anybody other than the voters that can hold these county officials accountable. And we have had several cases of sheriffs in the last couple of decades have either pretty serious allegations brought against them or in some cases like actual criminal activity. So I believe there was a Wyndham County Sheriff about 20 years ago that you know was uh, forced to resign uh, as part of a plea deal related to, uh, I believe it was inappropriate financial activities, embezzlement. You know, mm-hmm. we've had uh, a sheriff, I believe in Addison County, you know, be you know convicted of a pretty serious charge. We've had uh, issues with uh, the auditor bringing up uh, inappropriate or questionable payments being made to staff people on a sheriff's way out of office. And other than the transparency that comes from the regular audits, mm-hmm. if they flag something, it's sort of like, how do you hold this elected official accountable? They're the only real way to do that if the activity or the behavior of a state's attorney or a sheriff rises to a level where there's so much concern about either public safety or the public trust is for the legislature to use the impeachment powers that are granted to us. And um, as Martin and I will tell you, they are a <laughs> difficult, arduous, uh, and uncertain process to, to take on. But in both of these cases, we decided and the, you know, my committee, House GovOps, uh, supported the resolution that, that Martin and I uh, sponsored, which was HR 11, which yep. established the special committee. And that special committee, our job has been to investigate both of these cases mm-hmm. and to see whether or not either of them merit recommending what are called articles of impeachment to the House of Representatives. So right. we're a committee of seven. Uh, we're looking deeply into these cases over the off session. So the legislature adjourned back in May. We had a little veto session in June, but we've really just been working since May to figure out what is the truth? Uh, is there enough concern, enough evidence? Will the the testimony and the documents that we look at rise to the level of going to the House and saying, we think there should be a trial in the Senate that could remove this person from office if they're convicted? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's an interesting conundrum that we're we're all sitting with as a state right now because the one benefit to having someone who is an elected official who can really only be removed from office by either the voters or they resign, I can see a need for that because on the one hand, you want people to have the power to do what, what is right, quote unquote. The conundrum is when someone is not using their office in good faith, if the voters don't vote them out of office, what happens then? And I think that's that's something interesting with Grismore, where some of the the concerns with how he was running off his office, I think he was, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly, he was actually being investigated for uh, assaulting a someone in custody kicking kicking a handcuffed prisoner or witnessing it but not stopping it before the election 
so and yet he he was elected into office anyways um i just find that an interesting conundrum because when when do people start being held accountable for their actions in office right yeah i mean i could just talk a little bit about that as well that that uh so so the sheriff sheriff grismore uh after the primary and before the election uh he also was essentially the acting sheriff uh the previous sheriff had uh, I believe had completely stepped down, and Mike can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But but essentially, he was not acting. You know, Brismore was the sh was essentially the sheriff. But when this event happened, which uh, is being prosecuted uh, or charged at this point as a simple assault uh, on somebody who uh, had been um, uh, detained and was uh, had handcuffs uh, or his arms were I don't know if they use handcuffs specifically but he he was he was in a he was situation restrained. he was restrained thank you that's yeah. the word I was looking for thank you <laughs> I have not had enough coffee myself this morning uh, but anyway that he was restrained and and he's being charged with that but he was fired from the office after that occurred that's and right uh, there were uh, attempts to, you know, there were requests, and I think including from the governor, uh, for him not to run, for him to, to to essentially step down. But he continued, and he did run. Uh, and there were uh, write-in candidate op uh, options, uh, but he eventually, you know, he did he did prevail. But you know, that's still something that I think is relevant uh, for us to be looking at. Uh, so. Yeah, there's there's a number of of complicated factors uh, with the way that Sheriff Grismore came to office, mm -hmm. and it creates a lot of questions. You know, outside of whether or not you know there was a crime committed in either the financial investigation that is against him or the assault case that has already been um, that is already with the kicking of the detainee. So if we set aside the the criminal questions for a minute and just say, okay, well, what did the voters know when mm -hmm. they voted in you know the election leading up to November 2022? And so just to put a finer point on what Martin was saying about the timeline as a Franklin County voter, um, when you got your ballot, the only name that was printed on on the sheriff's block was John Grismore, mm -hmm. and he appeared with both the Republican and Democratic endorsements, the, you know, the both of those parties by him. And how did that happen? So the I believe that the primary uh, on Tuesday, August 9th um, of 2022 of 2022. So this is Thank last you. year, just a little over a year ago. Um, Mr. Grismore's name appeared on the Republican primary ballot. So he he was running as the Republican nominee. Mm -hmm. um, and he also received, um, I believe it was a little over 200 write-in votes on the Democratic ballot. There was no Democratic candidate uh, for sheriff. Uh, Mr. Grismore had been endorsed by the outgoing sheriff who decided not to run again, I believe primarily for health reasons. That was Roger Langevin. And... So, you know, then Grismore um, basically got in just enough votes to just kind of automatically get the Democratic nomination on top of being, you know, the only name on the ballot on the printed on the ballot for the Republican nomination, the primary. 
news. Um, uh, I am so sorry, Mike. It is raining here in my neck of the woods and you froze. So we heard 200 votes on the the Democrats um, and then it it kicked oh, out. No. So I'm sorry. Could you repeat yourself? <laughs> yeah, no. And hopefully hopefully it's coming through loud and clear. It's, it's raining my way down my way, too. Just to, to back up. So he Mr. Grismore received both the Democratic just enough writing votes on the Democratic primary ballot to lock up the Democratic nomination because there wasn't uh, a Democratic nominee in Franklin County, right? Gotcha. So there's no name printed on the Democratic ballot. You know, so in the August primary, the Republican ballot and the Democratic ballot are totally separate. So he was the only name printed on the Republican ballot and got those votes, obviously. And then uh, a couple hundred people countywide out of thousands of voters. I think there were over 5,000 votes cast in that Democratic primary he received a little over 200 write-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, would get both the Republican and Democratic, you know, sort of a fusion uh, endorsement on the general election ballot. And then two days after the primary, the video was released and the story rocked Franklin County, made national news. You know, we're, we're in a time, I would say, especially post, you know, the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. where there's a particular public sensitivity a conversation about use of force and to see a police officer the person who's really in charge of an office kick a detainee that's already you know being restrained and held back by two uniformed deputies you know the video was shocking and so republican and democratic leaders in Franklin County almost immediately called for Mr. Grismore not to run in the general, to withdraw his name from consideration. You know, I'm a Franklin County Democrat. There are many times I've sparred with my Republican neighbors up here on things. We were absolutely completely united in asking, you know, then Captain Grismore not to seek the office of sheriff, even though he had locked up both parties' nomination just days before in the Mm -hmm, primary. mm -hmm. And you have to know that it was really just a month later that people started to get their general election ballots. You know, we, we, Martin and I both, uh, you know, have voted for universal vote by mail and believe in that. And we want folks to have access. But if you were a voter who hadn't seen that story Mm -hmm. and the only name printed under sheriff on your ballot in Franklin County had both the Republican and Democratic endorsements, so that would signal to me as a voter, oh, this is the one nominee of both of these parties. It's, you know, sheriff is not really the most partisan office. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to fill in that bubble. I think about 35% of Franklin County voters voted for Mark Lauer, who was the, you know, a very experienced law enforcement officer who stepped up to run as a write-in mm-hmm. uh, in the general election. And there was also another write-in candidate. But Mr. Grismore, you know, being the only name printed on the ballot, he prevailed. So, uh, you know, I I have really mixed feelings and about the way that that election went down. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, have in the spirit of full disclosure, I was one of the local officials, many Democrats alike called for this, but asked Mr. Grismore after that video came out not to seek the office. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he did, and he won against the write-in candidate or two, actually. <laughs> and, 
And then it came out after the election that, you know, the simple assault charge was actually going to be made by the uh, Grand Isle state's attorney, um, mm-hmm. Franklin County state's attorney, John Lavoie declined to to be the one to do that case and asked for it to be done by um, Doug DeSabato, who's the state's attorney in Grand Isle. So that assault case was going through. And then in January, we found out that in the normal audit that happens of sheriff's finances, uh, when there's a change in, in the office, the contractor flagged something Mm-hmm. that went to the state auditor who hired the contractor who was doing the normal audit who said uh this is a matter for the state police and the state police put out the message that during the audit they had found something of concern and they were investigating mr grismore specifically mm-hmm. for some financial issue that had come up in the audit right. and so the voters didn't know about that certainly <laughs> back in november True. that all came out in january and so now there, are, there is also the added matter that the Criminal Justice Council is looking at the certification and whether or not Mr. Grismore can maintain his law enforcement certification. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on in this case, some of which the voters had an opportunity to see before November, much of which has come out after. And so back in May, we thought we should at least do this inquiry. Mm-hmm. and. The committee that Martin chairs and I'm the vice chair of, the seven of us, started taking testimony primarily about the Lavoie case, the state's attorney's case, because we had a report already to work off of. In the, the case of Sheriff Grismore, we have hired outside counsel to do an investigative report, gather documents, and we'll begin to start taking some testimony related to that matter in earnest next week. Okay. So we have a little over five minutes before the end of this first half. I went to your committee's website on, on the state website, which I will link to this folks in the show notes on our podcast, because there is a lot of really good information there. And I started with just that first meeting you had in May and looking at the enabling language and the memo from, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting the the memo writer's name at the moment, but looking at impeachment in general and what you could and could not do as this special committee. And one thing I found very interesting is that impeachment going through the memo, it's like it had a specific definition in the Vermont state constitution and yet not. It was kind of mushy and, and very structured at the same time. I'm like, this is wild. Was that your experience, um, either of you? Yeah, as far as what can constitute impeachable behavior is really the question. The the Constitution makes clear that uh, we have the authority to bring articles of impeachment, we being the House uh, with uh, two-thirds of the members, 100 votes to have articles of impeachment. It does not give much guidance as far as what is impeachable behavior. Uh, It says state crimes, essentially. Somebody who was uh, charged with state crime, but what is that? It's not, it's actually become pretty clear uh, just historically. And and we look to uh, the impeachment process that happened in 1976. Uh, that was the last time it was an impeachment. And really what they focused on was a concept called maladministration, where essentially the person, the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Mayo, I think if I'm saying that right, uh, 
he uh, did a number of, uh, you know, not really upstanding things. He uh, was, I think, uh, in a bar fight and he had uh, other other issues I won't get into, but but it, it wasn't uh, in and of itself necessarily a crime. And, and it doesn't have to be a crime that we've defined. The legislature defines what crimes are, of course. And, right, uh, in statute. Part of, our, part of our purview, but it doesn't yeah. have to be a statutory crime. So we looked at the history in Vermont of what could constitute impeachable behavior, but we also looked at other states. There are other states that in the last 10 years have uh, brought in impeachment uh, proceedings against uh, officials, elected officials, and we looked to the, the federal cases of impeachment. And the bottom line is it's fairly broad authority. The legislature gets to decide what is impeachable behavior. So the House in the first instance will decide and the way I kind of look at it is it's it's pretty simple, actually, is should this individual be removed from office despite having been elected into that office? I mean, that's kind of the, the overarching question. You know, there has to be a lot more analysis than what I just said, but that but that's the fundamental point. Should this person be removed by the legislature? And, and our role is to do the investigation and essentially bringing an indictment is what articles of impeachment are. And then it's up to the Senate to see if they agree with uh, with us. And, and there's actually a trial to see if the individual would be uh, in, uh, convicted or, or acquitted of those articles of impeachment. So as we proceeded in, in looking at, and we really started with the state attorney's uh, issue uh, that, that matter, uh, we, we were kind of a combination. We were, at, we were looking at what other states have done as far as what's in, uh, impeachable. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at our own history. Uh, we analyzed what kind of legal standards we should be applying. But at the same time, we were looking at the facts. We were trying to develop you know, what was happening, what did happen, what was, the, what was going on in Franklin County as far as in the state's attorney's office. How was that impacting the residents of Franklin County? Uh, so we, we, it was a balance between looking at what somebody could be impeached for, a, a maladministration, a breach of the public trust, as we were developing the facts. And, and so uh, that's how we approached that. Uh, and we didn't get to the point, frankly, <clears throat> with Lavoie, we don't have this fully figured out yet, mm -hmm. uh, because after hearing from 31 witnesses, uh, over the course of 13 different meetings uh, and fairly intense testimony, our next step was to have a discussion about what we'd heard and compare that to what should be impeachable behavior. But Lavoie resigned before we got to that discussion, so we haven't fully developed how those facts would fit the in impeachment standards. Perhaps we'll get there with Grismore, but, but uh, we didn't quite get there uh, with Lavoie. And I just want to make that clear with Lavoie, since he retired, uh, uh, resigned, and I, I think the person, there was a report uh, filed with your committee from an independent party in end of August that recommended since he has resigned, there's no point going forward with an impeachment proceeding. Is Did I understand that correctly? Well, that was, yeah, that was part of our charge was to uh, at the end of an investigation of each of those matters was to have report and recommendation. Uh, so that was from the from the special committee. Uh, and you know, frankly, you know, I, I will tell you that when we got towards the end of this, one of our last witnesses was uh, State's Attorney Lavoie. 
Uh, and at that point in the stage, before we started that discussion, uh, we made it under, you know, we had it understood uh, with his attorney uh, that if he were to resign, uh, we would drop the investigation and would not proceed. And, and that's what ended up happening. And we, our recommendation was to take no further action. The reason we did that is that if we were going to proceed with articles of impeachment, and again, we hadn't gotten to the point of, of making that decision, that would have been months before there would have been a change in that office. And I think it, what we were seeing, uh, I can't get into the testimony in detail, but certainly what we had saw over the course of talking to many individuals, including court staff, law enforcement, everybody in that office uh, and, and victims advocates, was that the office was functioning, but certainly not as well as it should. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the best outcome was for Mr. Lavoie to step down and would prefer to have that happen sooner than uh, later. And he did the right thing. Uh, and I think he, he realized and saw that putting the Franklin County and the state's attorney's office through another several months uh, of this kind of uh, stress would have really been the worst outcome. So it was good that he did step down and, and appreciated that he did step down. Uh, so. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mike, before we head to hear from some of our underwriters, do you have anything you want to add? Getting back a little bit to some of the things that are in the Constitution, I think Martin did a good job of describing how, you know, we're doing an investigation into these cases. The Lavoie case we've closed for the reasons Martin just mentioned. There's still this case of Sheriff Grismore. If we find that through our investigation that articles of impeachment are warranted, we're essentially like bringing an indictment, right, that would mm -hmm. then the House would vote on it. If the House advanced them, it would go to a trial in the Senate. Determining whether so let's say all of that happens one thing that the the constitution is really has become clear to us is that it's up to us to decide what's an impeachable offense mm -hmm. and it's really a political decision by the house and then on the articles and then on the senate based on what they hear at trial to decide whether that person who has been elected should be removed from office for the good of the people of vermont that's mm -hmm. the um and even though it has this many of the elements of like a criminal case or or it seems to to go through a, a process that is analogous to what you know prosecutors and then courts do it is not that and in mm -hmm. fact it very explicitly says in the constitution that uh, whether or not you're convicted uh in the senate impeached in the house etc an individual who's the subject of any of these proceedings still has all the civil and criminal liability for whatever conduct they had. The only thing we can do is remove that person from right. office, potentially prevent them from running in the future. Any of the same behavior could still qualify them for a lawsuit or criminal penalties. Thank you for that clarification, Mike. We have to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. But hang tight, Martin Lalonde and Mike McCarthy, and I will be back in a moment. Welcome 
welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with representatives Martin Lalonde and Representative Mike McCarthy, and we have been talking about the special committee on impeachment inquiry and the work it's been doing around Frank, the for, now former, now resigned, Franklin County State's Attorney John Lavoie, as well as Franklin County Sheriff John Grismore. Hey, both of you have been on the, the show before, Mike and Martin. Do you remember what we need to remind listeners of right now? That the opinions <laughs> of the guests and the presenter may not be the opinions of the radio station and the people sponsoring the show, something like that. <laughs> Mike McCarthy, yes, the views and opinions here on the happy hour are those of the hosts and the guests and not the platforms that the happy hour appears on or the radio station or our pets or our loved ones or basically anyone who's not us. And if you're just joining us, also just a reminder to listeners, uh, Emily Kornheiser couldn't be here today. So we hope we are doing the conversation justice without her. Mike and Martin, in the first half of the show, we we looked at impeachment broadly. And we talked a little bit about John Lavoie and what triggered the impeachment process. But I'm curious about Franklin County Sheriff John Grismore. Because while Lavoie has resigned from office, and so it sort of makes the impeachment part moot, there's still Grismore to to look at and his behavior and the the investigation into the finances of the department the his sheriff's department where are we with grismore yeah i i can take that as well but and i just want to make one other comment before we close the case on lavoy that please do we, we, we could have proceeded with impeachment to keep him from running again in the future that's part of uh, if somebody is impeached and, and convicted but oh, chose not to do that. We really didn't get any kind of indication that he might run again in the, in the future. I mean, he is in his early 70s. Not that that means anything these days as far as running for office. But just from other, you know, other things we heard, it, it didn't seem like that was a, a great risk. And it made much more sense to just stop that process. So mm-hmm. with respect to Grismore, the fact that we did close the matter in Lavoie, does free up our time now to really focus on Grismore, but we're in a waiting stage for for uh, for a few things. We would like to see what happens with the uh, Criminal Justice Council and uh, whether they are going to decertify the sheriff, meaning that he doesn't have law enforcement authority to to do what a law enforcement officer does. And I think that Mike will get into that a little bit further later. We're also waiting for our own uh, report from Downs Rackland Martin that's looking at financial issues and irregularities. The the decertification goes more to the use of force issue. So Mm -hmm. there's this use of force issue, and then there are the other possible uh, financial issues that we're looking at. So we're going to get started next week on the 20th of Wednesday to get some orientation for our committee, because some of our committee members have not delve deeply as uh, Mike uh, has in, in the roles of sheriffs or that I have in the uh, roles of, uh, in use of force. So just our, our committee, just one other thing I'd be, before I get into a little bit more to give you a, a, an idea of timeline for the Grismore, is the committee has seven individuals. There are three people from uh, the Judiciary Committee, 
uh, Representative Karen Dolan, Representative Tom Burdett, who is vice chair of the committee. There's two individuals from government operations. There's, there's Mike, and then there's also Matt Byrong, who is the vice chair of that committee. Uh, and then we have two other individuals. One, Kelly Paella, is a representative, and she she is in human services, but she's also the chair of the House Discrimination Panel, uh, which was certainly relevant with some of what we were looking at in the uh, Lavoie matter. Then we have, have also Carolyn Brannigan. So it's it has uh, it's it's uh, multi-party, you know, it's tri-party. It's uh, independent, two Republicans, and then four Democrats. It's from around the state, uh, and it's from different committees. So, but that, it, it's a great committee. They've been great to work with, very thoughtful. It, it's been a, as good an experience as can be when you're taking very intense testimony. But in any event, some of these individuals haven't really delved into some of these issues, which is absolutely fine. They're, they're, uh, and that's what we're going to start with is orientation as far as what use of force is, what the legislature has done as far as standards, the policies that have been put in place by the Vermont State Police and the Vermont Criminal Justice Council, the training that they do, and then the process of enforcement if there has been an alleged abuse or uh, excessive use of force. And then also just also from a sheriff. So, so those are our initial issues. And then we're somewhat waiting and hoping to get the Downs-Rackland-Martin report. But there are other things going on, which Mike has alluded to earlier. There is a, an investigation going on by the uh, state police and the attorney general's office. There is the criminal proceeding for simple assault. But we feel we can't really wait for everything to play out. Some of those processes because of the court backlog. You know, we're going to proceed as as soon as we get the Downs-Rackland-Martin report, and as soon as we have a little more guidance from the Vermont Criminal Justice Council, we'll proceed. So what this probably means is that uh, optimistically, I'm hoping that we finish up our work by the end of this year, and you know, it'll become a little bit more difficult. The other thing is that this is off session. We're not really in session now, and and mm-hmm. a lot of us have full-time jobs. And so it really is, can't really schedule more than one meeting a week, or it really upsets that people have to make a a living. So it does take a little while for us to get through everything. That's why it took all summer to get through 13 meetings and 31 witnesses. I think it'll be a little more expedited with respect to the Lavoie matter, because uh, I think we're not going to have to uh, repeat interviews of all the witnesses that our investigator looked at. It was mm-hmm. a little bit different in the Lavoie matter when we were relying on somebody else's investigator, but we uh, have a weekly update with the subcommittee with uh, Downs, Rackland, Martin, so we're keeping track of what's going on there. So hopefully they'll be able to testify as to a lot of the issues without having to go back to everybody they've looked at. But nevertheless, it's going to take time during the holiday season mm-hmm. and really hoping to have whatever we're going to recommend, whether or not it's articles of impeachment. If there are articles of impeachment very early in, in the next session, we would hopefully have a resolution before the House. And then it's really up to the Senate then if we have articles of impeachment to decide when to take up those articles, whether presumably sometime during the course of the session. But that's a little future. That's a little bit, uh, not not in the near term, so. Your explanation brings up a really good point, Martin, because, you know, with Lavoie, and I want to be very clear, for anyone who was on the receiving end of either of these gentlemen's behavior, this process is probably not simple. 
and not easy. So I just want to acknowledge that. But for Lavoie, because he's a state's attorney, it seemed like the position and the process was just a little more straightforward as far as what the uh, um, special committee needed to go through. But it seems with Grismore, if I'm hearing things correctly from, from both of you, that there are issues within the structure of the sheriff system in general, on top of whether or not this particular sheriff needs to be impeached, that is kind of adding to the process. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, so let's kind of zoom away a little bit from the specific case that we're looking at with this one, Franklin County Sheriff. And I I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, a number of examples from Caledonia, Orange, Addison (laughs) counties, uh, Wyndham County, where in the last two decades, there have been all kinds of issues with sheriffs. And what we've come to realize is that most of the time, a sheriff gets elected once every four years in each county. And they're a serious law enforcement professional who does a decent job and sometimes making the transition from being a police officer to an administrator and a public official can be bumpy, but they get support from the department and from, you know, other law enforcement leaders and they do fine. Right. And the character of most of those people, you know, not to be funny, but it is unimpeachable. (laughs) And then every once in a while we elect somebody who's really not the right kind of person for that office. And that's happened several times in Vermont history. I think we've seen pretty clearly some of these cases have gone all the way to, you know, indictments and resignations. And and we've seen that several times in pretty recent history. So that begs the question, do we have a structural problem with every four years electing this person, having them have, you know, an almost completely unilateral control over a pretty significant budget, They have the ability to enter into basically whatever contracts they want for their office. And so we've created this position that is kind of entrepreneurial by nature. You know, well-run sheriff's offices look to gather contracts from towns that want police services but don't have their own police department. They do traffic patrols that are required for construction sites, for instance. You'll see a sheriff with the the lights on uh, doing safety at those construction sites, you know, they'll provide security for events on contracts. And so the sheriff is able to have a lot of discretion over how that money gets spent. And so if you have an unscrupulous person that happens to get elected to that office, it could be years before you figure out that, you know, they're paying people inappropriately that, and it is entirely legal for them to pay anybody on staff or themselves in excess of their base salary you know Mm. sheriffs do get six-figure negotiated statutory base salaries and then they're allowed to pay themselves from the proceeds of their contracts on top of that and so you have a person with a lot of financial power a lot of power over the hiring and firing of staff and the really big power they have is over the liberty of people they if they're a certified law enforcement officer the sheriff and their deputies they can pull people over. They can arrest folks. They're enforcers of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and the level of independence they have and the lack of accountability that that can creep into some of the work that sheriff's offices do is of real concern. And we started to address that with a bill this year. It was S-17, went through my committee. The House Government Operations and Military Affairs Committee 
looks at the kind of administrative and structural issues around public safety and law enforcement, Criminal Justice Council, for, for instance, and Martin's committee, House Judiciary, you know, they deal with the actual policy and the criminal justice matter and how these things are done through the courts. So I'm kind of the administrative side and Martin's the what is the law side in his jurisdiction. And that's why the two the two of us uh, and people that work with us on our policy committees in the House are kind of featured in this special committee is that we have the two sides of um, dealing with public safety and law enforcement. And so that bill let us do some things that are important. It establishes a director of operations, somebody to help professionalize and, and get all 14 counties up to speed in terms of, you know, doing things like reporting uh, traffic stop data appropriately and those kinds of things where some of the smaller sheriff's offices only have the sheriff and a deputy or two and don't have a lot of money for administrative staff. So they need a little bit more support. It allows us to, you know, increase the frequency of those audits into financial records so that if there are issues, they get flagged earlier. It establishes model policy on hiring and how compensation and benefits are provided. So it does a number of things that we can do now under the Constitution. We cannot, for instance, now say, oh, sheriff, you did something that violated policy or the law. You're no longer the sheriff. Unless we go through this impeachment process and we find that it rises to the level of, you know, uh, a violation of public trust, oath of office, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And this process we're going through is complex. It's difficult. And it will require, it, even if this special committee after our investigation determines that articles of impeachment are warranted, it requires a two-thirds vote of the members of the House. So 100 mm-hmm. votes at least to advance to a trial in the Senate, and then in order to convict a two-thirds vote of the Senate members that are present. So the bar is so high and the process is so complex, you almost think if you have somebody who is pretty clearly doing something that's you know, criminal or violates policy or violates the public trust, you would want there to be review or mechanisms that can act more expeditiously than this. And so S-17 was kind of a start, but Senator Hardy, who's my counterpart in the Senate, has been working on language for a constitutional amendment that would uh, rein in, I think, a little bit and give the, the General Assembly the ability to create more oversight, transparency, and accountability for these county offices. And that that includes the sheriffs, the state's attorneys, assistant uh, judges, often called side judges, and uh, probate judges. Those four offices are pretty independent and kind of defined in the constitution in a way that gives them so much independence that I think it goes against a lot of our principles of checks and balances in, in modern politics. Thank you, Mike. Martin, anything you want to add to that? No, I think that covers that. And I'm looking forward to government operations, good work next session to keep on working on this. So, yeah. I appreciate what you said, Mike, about a level of independence that goes against perhaps our principles of checks and balances. I know some of these positions like the sheriff, the high bailiff, the side judge, they've sort of, I think they started in a time when government was different and communities were different, you know, way back in the the good old days, quote unquote. And it sounds a little bit like government has evolved around them and these positions perhaps may may not have evolved in the same way. 
But it also brings up questions for me around accountability in general, because it seems to me over the past few years, the legislature has been working around that issue, whether it's right now you're working on this impeachment issue. But before that, I think one of you mentioned the ethics panel and the dis discrimination panel within the legislature. I think in 2016, I'm, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, but he was a lawmaker who was accused of trading sex for rent. Is yeah, that the this, right one? Yeah, this was Senator Norm McAllister, um, also a Franklin County senator. I don't know what is going on up here in Franklin County that we've had these several issues in recent memory up here. Maybe uh, folks in Franklin County are just better at speaking up when they see these issues. I hope that, that that that's the case, but I also hope that we're not, that there aren't more of these things that are going unreported in other counties. So <laughs> that's a double-edged sword. But yeah, so, you know, I actually had a constituent reach out and say, why is this impeachment process for these two county officials so different than what happened with Senator McAllister? That's so, a know, really good question. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there were pretty credible claims about, you know, the, these, these issues of, you know, sort of sex for rent, I guess is a good shorthand for it. And it did go to trial. And ultimately, the he was not convicted of those crimes, right? And, but in the course of all of that happening, the legislature, as Martin said before, is able to do some things to police its own members. So in the Senate, they were able to remove him from his committees, Mm -hmm. uh, but they they can't impeach him. The removal from office wasn't really something that they had the ability to do, given the circumstances. And then there was an election and mm -hmm. he failed to win in the primary is my is my recollection. And so, you know, elections and resignations are <laughs> opportunities for us to you know get new people into office that are far more meaningful than well. I guess they're just better than impeachment. I mean, this impeachment process, it's really the, like the last resort when we think something mm. is so serious and rises to such a level that that we need to essentially short circuit what happened in the last election. And I think the fact that these county officials get elected every four years is different than us in the General Assembly or even the governor and other statewide offices. They're every two years, right? So right. almost all of the elected officials in the state are on a two-year cycle. We feel like we're always campaigning and that uh, has some downsides for our democracy. But, you know, there's an opportunity to get new people in office and have the voters weigh in again more frequently that you don't have when you've got these county offices every four years. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I, and I think that what we've done in the legislature as far as having a, a process, having a, an ethics panel, having a discrimination panel being able to take up complaints that we hear uh, on ethics or discrimination uh, and have a process established that can lead to something short of impeachment that can you know could lead to censure could lead to somebody being taken off of committees to not being allowed on the floor of the house for instance or or just uh, trying uh, different ways to resolve these issues and also for having a restorative process as well, that if if we see some sort of ethical lapse, 
you know, trying to correct that so that going forward. So that's something that's missing from other elected officials. And and I know that I introduced a bill and it is in government operations committee right now that would look to some of these processes, some to address some of these issues for other statewide elected officials, uh, which we really don't have any of those processes in place. I mean, we do have for the administration an ethics panel, but uh, how much teeth that has with respect to uh, statewide elected officials is kind of a question. So those are some things I think we need to continue to look at as well. I, I think one of the lessons from all of this is perhaps having better defined uh, processes short of impeachment for correcting some of the behavior that you know could potentially lead to impeachment, or at least or it could be a little short of impeachment, but something that you definitely want to have corrected and not necessarily have to wait for the next election uh, to correct. So, Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Martin. We have just five minutes left, and I know we've covered a lot of ground with this, but I, I appreciate it because, you know, when it comes to elected officials, it's, I always find it fascinating with, those those nuances of you want people to have the security to act on the best interests of their constituents you know this isn't a perfect world regardless of whether the rest of the legislature thinks that's right or not but if someone is truly serving their community you want them to have the security and the power to do that and yet what happens when someone is not acting in good faith or they're not acting on the best for their constituents, you know, what do you do then? Uh, especially at a time when the constituents, or as you outlined with with John Grismore, Mike, information isn't coming at the same speed as as the election, and people may not have the information they need. That's a quandary. And and so thank you for, for sitting with this and looking at these issues of accountability and the processes for accountability. You know, next steps going forward, I know the your your special committee needs to to finish up its work around Sheriff uh, John Grismore. And it sounds like there's some bills on the wall for next session starting in 2024. Yeah, I think the the trying to craft language this year that could be voted on by this general assembly and the next general assembly and the voters so that's our constitutional amendment process right. you'll remember Thank you. the constitutional amendment enshrining reproductive freedom in our constitution with uh, prop five that same process of having two general assemblies so this is really at fastest like a five-year kind of a, a process in the meantime, there are things that we did with the Bill S-17. We'll be following up on that. We'll be looking at the Criminal Justice Council and exactly what triggers for violation of policy, like use of force, is it is sort of like if you violate it one time, the Criminal Justice Council can bring it up. For other violations of policy, there are some things that it essentially needs to be the second complaint before mm. the Criminal Justice Council can even look at it. And thinking about, do we need to refine their process a little bit and give them potentially more resources in order to be able to deal with these complaints more expeditiously? So those are some of the things that my committee is going to be working on uh, that are related to these matters tangentially and, and, and could, I think, prevent us from having to have impeachments in the future. 
Um, I think impeachment is such a big, difficult thing that having some intermediary ways to either go through a restorative process when somebody's had some kind of a complaint brought against them that's substantiated to have a professional regulatory. So what happens if a state's attorney is disbarred, for instance, that, that hasn't happened, but I think they could theoretically still hold the office. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a sheriff and law enforcement. And that's really weird, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you could essentially still be the administrative elected person, but not have the professional certification or credential to actually do the job. Um, right. And so those are those are things I think we need to iron out. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Uh, Martin, anything you want to add? So we'll we'll be turning away from these matters and leaving them to the government operations. Although although certainly if we have to have a trial in the Senate, that will uh, I think detract from some of the other work that I'm trying to do with our our committee in in criminal justice reform, uh, looking at uh, some further expungement issues, expanding the use of restorative justice, but also dealing with some public safety issues as well, among a number of other things that are kind of on uh, the agenda for next year that we'll see what happens uh, with this impeachment inquiry and if there is a trial and how that impacts a lot of those other things that we want to get done. So, Thank you. Well, Representative Martin Lalonde and Representative Mike McCarthy, thank you for being here today. I will link in the show notes on the podcast page to the work that the special committee is doing. Uh, lots of great background documents there to help you understand the process even more. Mike and Martin, if folks want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Yeah, folks can reach me at uh, my legislative email, mccarthy at ledge.state.vt.us or go to ilikemikevt.com. Perfect. And Martin? Yeah, mlalone at ledge.state.vt.us. Did I get that right? Or martinlalonevt.com. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 and rebroadcast every 8 a.m. on Wednesday. We want to thank Brattleboro Community Television for sharing the video version of this conversation with uh, other access stations around Vermont. And if you want to reach out to us, you can drop us an email at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks so much, Olga. Thank, Thank you. you.